0: Uh, The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 16, sorry, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. That's how I got confused. Uh, Again, that is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and I encourage you, if you are able, to please stand for the reading of God's word. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Drill. Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning to everyone who's joining us on our live stream today. Uh, I'm Sully, and I'm looking forward to preaching today. This text contains one of uh, an excerpt from one of the, probably the best sermons ever preached on this planet. There's a podcast that I really enjoy called "It Was Said." It's hosted by the bi- biographer John Meacham, and in the podcast, it seeks to answer the question: What makes a speech? powerful and a speech that makes a difference and is remembered and often in the podcast they come back to this idea that that the greatest speeches ever given weave together logic and reason with passion and poetry i think when paul preached in athens he gave us a great example of how to do that he really gives us a masterclass on how to preach to a pagan culture with competing philosophies I know that there's a lot of distance between us and the Athens of Paul's day, both in time and distance, but the challenge is the same. Just as Paul sought to make the gospel sensible to those in Athens, so it is for us, as Christians, as followers of Jesus today, we have to ask the question, how do we make the gospel sensible to those around us? Well, today I really want to ask two questions. I want to ask, what makes the gospel so strange to our ears? And then secondly, you know, what what makes it make sense? And I believe our text actually gives us the same answer to both questions. The resurrection. It's what makes the gospel actually strange to hear, but if we view the gospel through the lens of the resurrection, it's actually what makes it make sense. Well, I don't want you to take my word alone for this. I want you to see it in the text. So if you do, have your Bibles, keep them open in front of you. Uh, But before we begin, I want to ask the Lord for his help. So, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we greet you this morning. We thank you that we have new life and we get to celebrate it every week. Father, I pray today that as we have gathered to worship, that, Father, you would allow us to hear from you, that your word would speak to us, to us in this city. Father, I thank you that your gospel has a word to say to us, that you have entered into time and history and brought us a message of hope. Though, Father, this message may seem strange to us, would you, Father, help us to see through the lens of the resurrection and believe that it is true? So, Father, today I pray that you would move in us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to joyfully obey you. Father, may your son, Jesus, be lifted high, magnified today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Athens, it's one of the greatest cities in the world. I mean, few cities have had such an influence on our world. Education, to politics, to science, religion, you name it, Athens has played a part in shaping our world. I remember back in 2004 when Athens hosted the Summer Olympics, and I remember some of the shots that they would have as they uh, showed the city of Athens, the uh, Pantheon atop of the Acropolis, and it was lit up at night, and you could see the city in the background. It was just a really uh, dramatic and powerful image of the city. Well, I had the, the privilege of actually going and visiting Athens a few years ago, and as you walk up the Acropolis, up to the Pantheon, this, this, the ruins of the, the, this temple, you can actually look down and see where it was most likely that Paul gave this sermon, And Paul here is speaking to the Areopagus, this council of thinkers and leaders. And I just have to think that what a dramatic setting for a sermon. Here he is standing before some of the greatest thinkers of his day in the shadow of the Pantheon. And here he is delivering a message to the city of Athens. It's worth asking the question how did Paul get here? How did he land this opportunity? We, we can look at our text today in two different parts. The first part, we're gonna look at really how, how Paul got here, and then we'll look at what he said once he got the opportunity. I believe it's the strangeness of the gospel that actually gets him this opportunity before the Areopagus, and then when he stands up and preaches, he helps the people make sense of what he has been talking about, the gospel. So to begin with, how did Paul find himself in Athens? He's a long way from home. You may remember he's on his second missionary journey. He's been traveling along preaching the gospel in city after city. Last week we looked at his time in the city of Thessalonica, and he was preaching and teaching, and people were coming to faith, but an angry crowd began to form, and they pushed him out of the city. It's been kind of a pattern that has happened time and time again. So Paul and his companions went on to the next city, Berea, and again they were preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith, come and trusting the Lord. And yet this angry mob of Thessalonians chased him down and began to threaten his life in Berea. And so some of the people in Berea actually helped smuggle Paul out of the city and took him out of the region of Macedonia down south to the, to the region of Achaia, where the city of Athens is. And they probably thought, well, he probably could, could blend in a little bit better here in Athens. Well, upon arriving in Athens, he tells his travel companions to go back, go back and get Timothy and Silas. And Come meet him in Athens. So here at the outset of our text that uh, we just read, Paul is in this big city that he never planned to be in, alone, waiting for his companions to join him. So as we open up our text, I want you to look back with me at verse 16, and let's look at how he spent his time waiting. This is verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Seasons of waiting are never wasted in the hands of God. Do you believe that? Our culture is so time-sensitive or time-obsessed. I know for myself I'm a product of our culture, and any time I feel like I'm waiting, it feels like wasted time. And so I immediately pull out my phone and begin to scroll, right? Social media, the news, email, whatever I can do to make myself feel like I'm not wasting time. Well, the Lord doesn't want to waste time either. But the danger sometimes is that as we seek to avoid the feeling of wasting our time, we might actually be distracting ourselves from really why it is God has us in that season of waiting. Paul, knowing that God never wastes time, looks around and he is not distracted he sees the city and what he sees breaks his heart it makes his spirit within him provoked and he sees that the city is full of idols that the language there full of idols it carries with it the idea of a, of a forest thick with trees it's a athens is a city thick with idols and it breaks his heart he, hear me out on this for just a second of of this this how paul responds to this moment of waiting Paul never meant to be in the city of Athens. He, if you recall, felt called to preach in Macedonia. That's where he felt like he should be. And so here he is in Athens, and he's waiting for Paul or for, for Timothy and Silas to join him. He could have very well found a nice Airbnb, huddled away, enjoyed some rest, enjoyed the food and sights, and just waited so that once he could get his companions back, they could head on back over to Macedonia. But that's not what Paul does. He trusts that the that God would not waste this time. The uh, text tells us that what he ended up going out and doing is not going and huddling away and trying to stay safe. He actually goes out and begins to share the gospel with people. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace. Uh, Athens didn't have the internet, but they had the marketplace, this area where people gathered for commerce, for community. They gathered there to get their news It was a gathering place, and this is where he preached, and it tells us that in the text, he just preached to whoever it was who was there. And seasons of waiting in the hands of God are never wasted. I hope, Holy Trinity Church, that that you are thinking about time in the same way. I don't know if Chicago is a place you imagined yourself living in or staying here very long. Maybe you feel like you're waiting waiting for school to wrap up and graduate so you can move on. Maybe you're in a season of waiting for the next job opportunity that'll take you on to another place, So, just a season of waiting, waiting for the pandemic to be done, waiting for a longing to be met. I'm not sure what it is, but I hope and I pray that you see that God has good plans and good purposes for you, even in the midst of a season of waiting. The question then really becomes, will we have eyes to see the gospel opportunities before us. Every day that Paul was waiting, you could find him, as I said, in the synagogue or in the marketplace, preaching. And verse 17 says that he spoke to whoever happened to be there. I love the picture of Paul just, just ready, waking up every day thinking, the Lord is going to put people in my path and I'm going to get the opportunity to share the gospel with them. I love that idea of just a readiness to preach, readiness to share the gospel. One of the things I love about Sunday mornings is that we gather, and I look out, and I see people from all different neighborhoods of our city, all different industries across the city, and I think about all the different people that you will come across this next week, and I think about all of the gospel opportunities that are before us. Each week, we finish our service with a a benediction. It's a moment in our service where we remind each other that we are sent out, we are sent once, we are sent into the city, we are scattered across the city. And God has plans and purposes for us in this city to preach the gospel, to share the good news. I think about, though, the fact that we need eyes like Paul who who might see the needs of our city and have our spirits within us provoked that we might proclaim the gospel. Well, I hope that that is true, but here's the thing. As soon as you begin to open your mouth and share this good news, it's most likely going to be met with opposition or mocking or someone misunderstanding you or questioning you they're going to look at you as if you're strange or odd the benediction is a moment that it reminds us that god goes with us as well we need that reminder because being a people who are sharing the gospel is not going to be an easy thing for paul he is actually looked at in a really strange way the people don't really know what to make of him Look back at the text with me. See how he is actually looked at in a strange way. This is verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I think what happens here is super interesting. What happens here is that Paul is thought of as really strange or odd. And what happens is that uh, Paul is given this opportunity, and they look at him as, wow, he's, a, he's an oddball. I love that it says that Paul is just ready to, to preach, and when he preaches, it says that what they heard was strange to their ears. This message, the gospel message, didn't fit into the categories of the, uh, of the people of Athens. They didn't understand what it was that he was preaching. It didn't fit well with their worldview. This idea of the resurrection didn't make sense to them. So here it is. Paul is preaching to this polytheistic culture, and they're trying to make sense of what he's preaching, and, and they think that, well, he's just preaching about some foreign divinities. And so they begin to, to say, well, these are just some foreign gods. We can make another idol for him uh, and make room in our city for these foreign gods. But it really doesn't fit in, into it. They still don't understand Because Paul is preaching a message of a God who is sovereign and ruler over all, that he is sovereign over all of their idols, all over everything. It just doesn't fit. And so they ask him uh, to come and to preach to the Areopagus and into the marketplace. To be concise as I can be, I believe it is the resurrection that he is preaching that sounds so strange to their ears. Uh, he says here that when Luke summarizes what he's preaching, it says that Luke was, or that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, not Jesus and the incarnation, not Jesus and the transfiguration, Jesus and the resurrection. That's what sounded so strange to their ears. Well, as we said, we are a long way from Athens, but some things don't change. The idea of the resurrection is still strange to our ears today. It doesn't make sense to believe that someone might come back from the dead. Our science, history, our own experiences tell us that, don't they? And so here it is when you and I, when we begin to preach this same gospel of a resurrected Lord, we better be ready to be thought of as strange and mocked, just as Paul was. A friend of mine uh, recently was getting her hair done, and she was sharing with uh, her, or her hairdresser was sharing with her about, how she was having some relationship troubles, particularly how she was having uh, some trouble with the different men that she was sleeping with. My friend, who's a Christian, uh, said to her, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I don't know really what that must be like as, as a follower of Jesus. I, it's not really how I live. And the hairdresser looked at her and could not believe that there, here's a woman who is single and wasn't sleeping around. Uh, my friend said, She looked at me as if I was a unicorn. And, And my friend wanted to tell her, well, guess what? I'm not the only unicorn. I live with two other unicorns who live this way as well. As followers of Jesus, we are going to be thought of as just odd and strange. But as followers of Jesus, when we have seen the truth, when we have seen the gospel, it changes everything. We view the world in a whole new way. Acts 17, Paul is accused of preaching a gospel that was turning the world upside down. And when you have come to accept the gospel, it changes the way you view the world. The things you once desired, you no longer desire. The things you once scorned, you now actually desire to see. And it just changes the whole way you view the world. To the Athenians, it was Paul's message. of the, Paul was the strange one. But Paul, looking at the city of Athens through the lens of the truth, the lens of the gospel, it was their idolatry, it was their way of living that was so strange. There's a a hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, a well-known hymn. It was written in 1918 by Helen Lamel. And she wrote that hymn based off of a a missionary tract that was given her. And in the missionary pamphlet, it, it said this. It said, So then, turn your eyes upon him, look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. As followers of Jesus, when we now look out at the world, Things don't look normal anymore. The injustice of our city, the the brokenness, just doesn't make sense anymore. It looks strange to us to try to find our identities in our work, trying to find hope in money, trying to find fulfillment in the things of this earth. It only makes sense then to turn and to trust the resurrected Lord. So in our text today. Paul is called upon to speak to this great council because he brings a message that is strange. He is viewed as strange and odd, but it's the resurrection that just doesn't sound right in our ears, and yet it's when we view the gospel through the resurrection that it begins to make sense. That's really, I believe, what he seeks to do as he gets this opportunity to preach before the Areopagus. Verse 22, it's kind of a turning point in our text. Uh, We go from focusing on how Paul gets this opportunity and the strangeness of the gospel to how to make sense of it all. You might have heard that faith is not blind or it's not irrational. Faith in Jesus is actually something that's very rational. If if you know that Jesus is resurrected, if he is the sovereign Lord, it makes sense to place your trust in the person who has uh, no equal when it comes to knowledge and power and wealth and understanding. So how do you help someone see that it is rational to trust God, even though they may not have the same categories or language or picture of God? Paul gives us a bit of a masterclass on how to do this. Three simple moves in his sermon. He begins with this connection with the Athenians, and then he moves to confront them with the truth of who God is, and then he finishes with a very clear call to repentance. Look with me at verse 22. This is how he begins, he said, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul begins with an observation about his listeners. He says, I've walked your streets, I've seen how you live, And you are a very religious people. Here he is, standing in the shadow of the pantheon, this incredible temple to their different idols and gods. It's something they couldn't deny. Yes, we are a very religious people. people. And he says to them, and I've come across one of your idols that has this inscription, to the unknown God. Here it is, they are so religious that they even make an idol to any god that they may not even really know. And so here Paul is standing before them, and he makes this connection. He says, look, I want you to hear what I have to say. I know that you are very religious, and I see that you actually have an idol that, that, that represents the fact that there might be a God that you don't know. And what I'm about to proclaim to you is the God that you don't know. I believe what he's doing here right at the beginning is helping them understand why they might actually want to hear Paul speak why do they want to hear what he has to say well because he's going to proclaim something that they have not known a god who they have not known paul's master class in preaching and evangelism is one i wish i would have taken earlier in life i was uh, in undergrad a religious studies major and a part of my degree i had to get a i had to do a capstone presentation for the entire religious studies faculty so the day came and I thought, "Well, gosh, this is my opportunity to, to share the gospel with my professors." And so the day came and 30 or 40 professors came and these were experts in the world religions. And I got up there and I, I began my presentation. I said, "I believe there's a God. And I believe that we can know him and that he wants a relationship with us and we can have that relationship through Jesus Christ." I got done with my presentation and as soon as it was time for the Q&A where they were supposed to dialogue with me, it was silent. I mean, it was so awkward. I think one of the, the department head had to come up with some type of question about a book or something like that just to break the silence. It was it was kind of it was discouraging. Because what I realized is that the lack of questions wasn't from a place of just opposition to what I said. It was coming from a place of indifference. I had just talked about this gospel in a way that didn't connect with them. What Paul does here is he he shows us that that a good evangelist is someone who helps people see that the gospel answers the questions that they're asking. I believe the reason why my presentation before my professors was met with indifference was because I was trying to answer a question that they weren't asking. There's a study done that shows kind of what are the questions that people are asking. And one of the findings from this study showed that people are less interested in the question about whether God exists or not And more interested in the question, does it even matter that he exists? As evangelists, as proclaimers of the gospel, we need to be listening to those around us, seeing what are the questions people are asking, helping to present the gospel in a way that helps people understand why they need to hear it. Paul, he makes this connection with the unknown God and says, I'm about to proclaim to you a God that you don't know. And so he begins then, and he explains to them in a beautiful way who it is the God that he worships and how he is far different than any of their idols that they worship. Turn and look with me at verse 24. This is what he proclaims. He says, "...the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." Again, this idol of the unknown God is a stepping stone, a crack in the door, and he begins to walk through it, and he begins to proclaim a God that they don't know. Unlike their idols, which produce nothing, God is the God who has produced everything, the world and everything in it. Unlike their gods, were are often um, only lord over a particular thing like the harvest or fertility. God is the sovereign ruler over all things. Unlike their idols that lived in temples, no man-made temple could contain the fullness of his God. Unlike their idols, which were breathless, God was the giver of breath. Unlike their idols, which have very specific boundaries and limits, God is the one who has set the boundaries of people and nations and times. Unlike their gods, which hide behind inanimate objects, God, the Paul, Paul's God is a very near God who desires to be known. In this sermon, he proclaims a, a God who is far different, far superior to any of their idols. He paints this incredible picture of who God is. He then even pulls upon some poets from their own culture to reinforce his points. He goes to show us that culture, poetry, art can actually help reinforce biblical truth. Paul doesn't actually quote directly any scripture to them but everything he says is saturated in the biblical truth of who God is. He almost has painted such a beautiful picture of who God is that he almost doesn't have to say it. Uh, What is the right response to a God like this? But he does. He moves from making this connection with them to confronting them with the truth of God to making a very clear call to, to response, a call to repentance. Verse 29 The picture that Paul gives us is this immaculate picture of God, and the only rightful response is to repent, to turn from idols, and to worship him. This is the the message you and I have been called to proclaim as well to our city, to proclaim this message that, that we must turn from our idols and see that there is a living God who is far superior to any of the idols we create. As we've said, we are far from Athens of Paul's day. But don't be mistaken, we also have idols in our life. Calvin, John Calvin, has said that our hearts are idol factories. If Paul were to walk our streets, he would see people making idols out of their work, idols out of their sexual identities, out of their social media, out of their families and relationships. These idols, sure, might make sense to worship if if the resurrection wasn't true, if God wasn't the God that he describes in the Bible. But because the resurrection is true, it's as foolish to try to worship our false idols. You see, when we view the resurrection, this is kind of where Paul ends his sermon. He reminds them that all of this is true. He has assured us that this is true by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection, if it is true, then this whole picture of who God is, then makes sense. If God is able to raise Jesus from the dead, then it makes sense that he is the God who has created all things and given breath, who is so powerful, so, so amazing that no temple could contain him. In a few moments, we're going to partake of communion. It's a meal that reminds us of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It reminds us that Jesus came and lived and breathed And died on the cross. But if that was the end of the story, this meal would just be a meal of mourning, of sadness. But that's not the case. Jesus, three days later, rose again. And so we partake of this meal, yes, to remember his death, but also to remember that one day we too will rise with Christ and we will feast forever. The resurrection, it's the linchpin that helps us to know that the gospel is true. It gives us hope that one day all things will be made right. So let me finish with just two very clear applications. First, let me speak to those here this morning who still find this gospel message rather strange. Uh, The end of our passage today, it speaks about the response of those who heard the sermon, and it says that some heard and some still mocked Paul. Well, today I just want to ask you, What is it that makes the gospel so strange to your ears? And might it be that the very thing that makes it so strange, might it be the very thing that makes it make sense? And as you're considering that, what is it that must be true for you to believe? Is the resurrection of Jesus evidence enough that our Lord rules and reigns today? Secondly, to those of you here this morning who are followers of Jesus, I I want to remind you that you, like Paul, have been called and commissioned to share the gospel to help make this strange message sensible to the world. Many of our leaders here at Holy Trinity have read a chapter from a book by Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist, called The Congregation as Hermeneutic of the Gospel. And his premise is this, that, that the world will help, will make sense of the gospel when they see people actually living as if the resurrection is true. They will understand that unicorns exist because they see them, that they will see that people following Christ, they will then begin to say, hey, it might be true that that Jesus is resurrected. You may not be the most eloquent speaker. You may not be the most talented cultural critic, but you can make the gospel sensible to our world by living a life that is oriented around the resurrection living as if it is true, because it is. So Holy Trinity Church, might we this week take hope from the resurrection, but also let us view the world through the resurrection and help people see the truth of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, thank you that you have, you have raised Jesus from the dead. And Father, with that we know that our sins are forgiven, that we have hope, that we have new life. So, Father, I pray that you would fortify us once again for another week, that though we might be misunderstood, mocked, rejected, questioned, that, Father, we, standing in the truth of the gospel, in in light of the resurrection, Lord, we would press on. And I pray, Father, that many, many would see the resurrection and trust and believe the truth of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.